That is the question that I want to talk about today, and really I'll phrase it differently. Is being a Christian worth it? And maybe that makes us uncomfortable on Easter, and I'm sorry if that's true, but is being a Christian worth it? I mean, when Jesus got like a good Easter crowd, he would say things like, hey, if you want to be my follower, then leave everything, uh, including your family, to come follow me. And uh, another time he said, if you want to be my follower, then here's what you have to do. You have to be willing to pick up your cross daily and follow. You have to be willing to die every day for me. And so it is a valuable question, and I don't know if anybody stopped to raise their hand when Jesus was talking, like, hey, hey, Jesus, like, is it worth it? I mean, is it worth it to follow you? I like good values, and uh, I, I'm a big fan of goodwill, and uh, I, as I was sitting out there singing, I was wondering if I had anything on from goodwill. I usually do on a Sunday morning, but I don't today. These shoes my dad gave to me, he didn't want them anymore like 15 years ago, so that's close, but I like to go to goodwill, and one of the things I like about it is that when you go there, you can, you can look at the prices, and you can see like this is worth it and this is not worth it. And I found this interesting, this is a little Goodwill tip. Uh, if you get nothing else out of Easter, uh, then, then get this, I guess. But uh, at Goodwill, you'll find that if it has a name brand on it, then the guys that are like 20 years old who are in the back room are going to inevitably mark it up way higher than it's worth. But if it's like a brand that young people don't know, then you can find absolutely great deals. And I, and I love that and I love finding value in things. And I think that it's important if you're not a Christian or even if you are and you, you question like, is it really worth it to live for Jesus today? It's a valuable question to say, is being a Christian worth it? Is it smart? Is it the right value? Is my life for this thing called Christianity a, a good idea? Jesus himself said about following him, who doesn't count the cost? And the truth is people all over the world when they are confronted with the gospel, the story of Jesus, they have to count up the cost and make a decision. Is it worth it to follow this person that lived 2,000 years ago named Jesus? This is really a transaction. I mean, Christianity is a transaction, and, and, and I think every person kind of inherently knows that, that if they're going to become a Christian, then they're going to have to give something up. And, and here's the sad reality is that most people have a false view of what this transaction looks like. If you were to go back 50 years, then in somebody's head who's being confronted with Christianity, the transaction might look like this. You go to the right church, the right kind of church, and you follow the rules and you give money, then you will fit in with society. And 50 years ago in America, that was just the case. Like, you needed to show up at the right kind of church in your, in your community. You needed to make sure that you followed a whole bunch of rules. Don't go to movies. Don't dance. Do all these things. Make sure you give money. And then you'll fit in with your family. And everybody, you'll make everybody comfortable. You won't, you won't hurt anybody's feelings. It'll just, it will feel normal to you. And so I think if you went back 50, 60 years ago and you said, you know, if somebody could really just look inside their soul and, and say, what is the transaction? of Christianity that I'm kind of worried about. They'd be like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the right church. I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to give money, and, and it's just going to kind of make me fit in. No big deal. 
Another way that this transaction has been seen um, is, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago when uh, what they call the seeker-sensitive movement came where churches really started to become a show. And if you don't like that, it started happening about 20, 30 years ago. And they just, they, this is what the church kind of presented. Like, if you go to a church, especially a big church, and you give money to us, then you will leave every Sunday feeling really good about yourself. And I think that people saw Christianity as this, like I, I show up at a church that has a great light show and I give them money so that they can continue to keep the light show going and every week I get to go home and tell people I went to church and I feel good and I'm making my parents happy because they went to church in the old days when you had to go to church and, and so that's what some people have seen Christianity as. Another way, and this way has been seen in really all eras of the church, is this. If you go to church and you give the church money, then you will get even more money back and you will have perfect health. All you have to do is turn it to channel 24 if you have an antenna, and you will find somebody this morning probably talking about how the resurrection Easter is really just about this. They'll use other words to kind of fool you, but but they'll say basically this. If, you, if you're part of a church and you give money, then God's going to give you more money and you'll, you'll have great great health and everything will be perfect for you. And, and here's another way that we see it today. Um, it's simply this. Uh, say some prayer when you're a kid, you get to go to heaven. It doesn't matter what you do for the rest of your life. I mean, just, hey, if you were three years old and you said, Jesus, I believe in you, come into my heart, you've heard it said like that, heaven. Doesn't matter what happens in between now and then, that's the transaction. And this is maybe how you think of Christianity today. It's like this. Go to church, be a Republican, live counterculturally, give money, hate the movie Noah, and you can be weird and, and you can't sleep in anymore on Sundays. Isn't that, the, I mean, we laugh, but like that is how people have come to see Christianity today in our society. It's not like, well, if I do it, I'll fit in. It's like, well, if I do all these things, then I get this terrible return on my dollar, like that's not a good deal. That's like going into Goodwill and buying a name brand. It's like I'm just going to be weird and, and I'll, I won't be able to sleep in on Sundays and only have two days to do it anyway. So why are they trying to take my Sunday? And that's what people see it as. And then if you were to go back, and I, I, we skipped ahead a little bit, but if you were to go way back to the, to the very beginning of the church, and, and this is the, the passage in the Bible that we're going to look at today is a letter that a guy named Paul writes, and he's responding to the way in which people viewed the transaction that they thought was Christianity in the early church. And what we'll see in a minute is, is that Paul responds to this, faith plus the Jewish law equals the you have righteousness or a right relationship with God. Faith in Jesus and what he did plus the Jewish law equals righteousness. And Paul's going to respond to this and he's going to say, look, I want you to know what the, the Christian transaction really is. And the, the thing is about all of these transactions that I've said, at some point when you have smart people around, when you have people that are just logical at all, they go, these transactions aren't worth it. I mean, like, every single Sunday I got to go to church and I have to follow all these rules my entire life and I have to give money and then I can fit in. Like, at some point people will rebel against that, right? Like, I don't care what my parents think anymore. I'm not going to church. I'm not giving them my money. It doesn't matter if I fit in. That's not a good transaction. At some point, people that go, if I give money and go to church, then I'll be healthy and I'll have lots of money. They're like, well, I gave a lot of money and I haven't seen any of it come back. And the only people getting rich are the people on TV who I sent the money to. And it's like, well, that transaction is stupid. 
right? And so people look at these transactions. I think it's the reason we've come to that final transaction that you laughed at, that now you just have to hate the movie Noah, is because everybody's rejected as you've gone through the generations these false transactions that are Christianity because when it's not the real thing, it's really not that good. I mean, if you are showing up on a weekly basis and you're giving up your Sunday morning to feel better about yourself, if that's kind of the goal of your Christianity, then man, sleep in, it makes you feel good too. Like eventually you're just gonna realize that. And so Paul responds really to all false pictures of what the transaction of Christianity is. And here's what he says, Philippians 3 verse four, this is how he starts. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now for Paul, he had kind of a, a dual view of the world and he, he saw, uh, he talked about the flesh is really all worldly things that were evil, that were kind of counter what God would want you to do. Uh, he saw the flesh as the things that we do on our own apart from God, anything that you kind of do on a daily basis. And he says, look, if anybody has reason to put confidence in this, the things that kind of happen in a physical worldly sense, the things that I do on a daily basis, it's me. That's pretty arrogant sounding right I mean for Paul like if he's starting this this is what the transaction is really about and he's like hey if I have confidence if anybody can have confidence in me and the implication if you looked at the actual language of this before it was translated in English the idea is I used to place my confidence in the flesh I used to place my confidence in things that I could do the money that I could give the church that I went to the ability to follow rules and he gives us a few descriptions of this this is what he says Philippians 3 5 and 6 he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now this doesn't mean anything to us in our modern day context. I mean like, I don't care that you were circumcised on the eighth day. Like there's not, a, I don't place, I don't know what day I was circumcised on, to be honest with you. I just might have revealed more about myself than I wanted to there. But, um, but, but I don't know that, right? <laughs> Forgive me, everybody. Uh, but Paul, Paul is like, hey, I am, in essence, the perfect Jewish person. And when he's writing to a group of people that understood what it meant to be a Jew, and he's writing about people that were placing confidence in the ability to follow the law, he wants them to know that he had done it better than really anybody. He specifically, if you were to go back to 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, he's specifically talking to a group of people who are saying, in order to be a Christian, you must be circumcised. And the Roman people the people in a city called Philippi, whom Paul is writing this letter to, many of them would not have been circumcised. It wasn't a normal part of their culture like it was for the Jews. And so a group of people comes in, they're Christians, and they say, here, if you want to become a Christian, believe that Jesus is a person, a God who died for your sins, but also, here's what we need you to do. We need you to get circumcised. That's gonna keep a lot of people from becoming Christians. That transaction just gets way worse, right? When you're 30 years old and they're like, here, you can be a Christian, believe in Jesus and be circumcised. You're like, eh, I'll think about it. I'll get back to you on that. And so Paul comes right out. He says, look, I'm not giving this argument that you'll see in the rest of this because I'm not circumcised. And you've been there, right? Where like people will argue something just because it doesn't fit them. And so they're frustrated and they don't fit in. And they're like, well, you don't have to be that way. And, and they start to argue. But Paul's like, I was circumcised on the exact day that the Jewish law said to be circumcised. 
This argument is not coming because I'm not fitting into your category. He says that he was from the tribe of Benjamin, just to contextualize it. That's like a, a, a great heritage. It would be like saying, I'm, I'm an American of all Americans. I come from the lineage of George Washington. That's basically what he's saying. Benjamin was a, one, of the, one of the early Jewish people in the history that we have in, in the Bible. And, and so Paul's saying, look, look, I can trace my lineage back to like one of the forefathers of our faith and of our nation. He says that he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means he hasn't become Hellenized or like the Romans. He lives like a Jewish person, and he comes from Jewish parents. He says that in regard to the law, he's a Pharisee. The Pharisee was a group of religious people that had respect and power and influence over the entire culture at the time, and they were known because they were so, so strict in their willingness and desire and efforts to follow the Old Testament law. They were so strict that they added hundreds of more laws in order to follow the laws they were the top religious people of the day and so he's like hey in regard to this law thing I'm like one of the big shots I was teaching the law before I became a Christian I was telling other people how to follow the law and he says as far as zeal passion uh, persecuting the church Paul was literally persecuting Christians before he became a Christian We'll see what flipped him in a minute. But he, he held the coats for people that stoned the very first martyr. And when we encounter him uh, uh, the second time after that event, we see that he's actually gotten permission to go around the cities and arrest anybody who is claiming to be a Christian. That's Paul's job. And then it says, for righteousness based on the law faultless. Paul's saying like, hey, I know there's a lot of, a lot of laws in the Old Testament, but I didn't break any of them. He's not saying he's perfect. That would be very much against what Paul says elsewhere. He's simply saying the Jewish law, I fulfilled it. Nobody can come to me and say, you broke this law or this law or this law. I've done it. I have succeeded in following the law. And so Paul looks at these people, especially these people who are saying, well, you got to kind of follow the law to be a Christian. and you, gotta, you have to do something besides believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And he says, hey, if anybody could claim to have done it, me. I am really more awesome than any of you. Now, we do this a little bit differently in our world today, right? I mean, we would never be like, here's when I was circumcised and I followed the law perfectly. We have our own set, our own standard of things that we say, look, this is what makes me awesome. I mean, I'm rich, I drive a better car than you, I have a nicer house, I have a more beautiful spouse than you do, I'm more well-respected than you are, I, I, uh, I am cooler than you are, I have nicer clothes, I, I'm awesome. And Paul's saying, like, look, if anybody has a reason to be confident in the things that a society values, it's him. It's him. And he goes on, and this is what he says, and this is so crazy. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. 
Now, this is transaction language, right? And it's a weird flip from what Paul has just said. Like, I used to put confidence in the flesh. I had more reason to do that than anybody. But now he says, whatever were gains, whatever were on the positive sides, whatever had a plus sign in front of it, I now consider them negatives. And he says the word lost three times in different forms there. Lost, lost, lost. He's saying the things that used to matter, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, being the perfect Jewish person, Those things I now consider a negative to me. He's not just saying I got rid of them. He's saying those things I actually see as something that were bad and that were keeping me away from everything that I really wanted to accomplish. He says, hey, yeah, I had more more reason to put confidence in the flesh than anybody. But now, all of those things that I used to say, hey, this is why I'm awesome. Now I look at them with a minus sign in front of them. They don't matter to me. I see them as bad in some ways. And he says that they are losses in comparison to the gains, the positives. And the positives, he states in really three ways. He says being in Jesus, knowing Jesus, and having a righteousness. Before he says that, he uses this word garbage. He says everything that I used to care about, I now consider Garbage, very bad translation, very kind translation. Uh, The word does not refer to garbage. The word refers to, and there's no other way to say it. Well, there are, but no other way that you would forgive me for. The word means poop. I mean, that's what Paul is saying. Uh, He's saying, everything that I used to care about, I now consider a big turd. That might be the one you don't forgive me for. Because, that's what he's saying. I know it's Easter. I just, it's the Bible. Like, you can take it up with Paul when you get to heaven. Uh, just, he says, everything I used to love, everything that used to matter to me, everything I used to put my hope in, now I consider it poop compared to knowing Jesus as my Savior. It's pretty crazy. And he gives us this wonderful picture of the gospel because what he's saying, what he is simply saying is everything that used to matter, everything that seemed really cool to me, it it does not compare. It is not even close to what I have being a Christian. And he describes Christianity for us and it's really important that we see how Paul views Christianity. He says to know Jesus. Knowing Jesus isn't just like, yeah, I heard that there was this guy named Jesus. It's simply this. It's simply understanding who Jesus is. And as we talked about last week on Palm Sunday, Jesus was God. He is God. He was in heaven. And he came to earth as a person in order to die for the sins of the world. And Paul wants to know that and experience that even more. He had an understanding of it, but he wanted to know it even more, who Jesus was. He wanted to be found in Jesus. And that is to say, he wanted to be seen through the death of Jesus. Paul tells us elsewhere that when Jesus died... And rose again, what happened is that everybody who believes in that, it's like they died with Jesus. He tells us that on Jesus' cross, our sins were nailed there. In baptism, when we baptize somebody, they, are, they go down into the water because they are saying, I am now in Jesus. I am surrounded in his death. And the gospel story, the story of Jesus is simply that Jesus died on the cross that we celebrated on Good Friday and we'll celebrate more in a minute. He died there so that we don't have to. And as he hung on the cross, it was as if we hung on the cross because our sins were removed forever if we will give him our life. So Paul says, like, I want to know Jesus more because because I already know something about him, that he's God and he's Savior and he's awesome. I don't want to know him more, and I want to be found in him. 
I want to be seen by the Father in heaven through the lens of Jesus' death. And then he says that he wants a righteousness through Jesus. And the gospel is simply that because Jesus died and Jesus rose again, if we place our faith in that, if we say, look, I know I'm a sinner. I've sinned. I've done wrong things. I've been disobedient. Even if I don't know what God has told me to do, I can guarantee that I've broken those rules, those laws. I've done things against God in heaven. And the gospel, the story of Christianity, what Christianity is, is saying, okay, I know that I did that. I need a savior. I believe that Jesus is that savior. And so I will give him my life. I believe that on that cross, the cross that Jesus died, my sins were paid for. I deserved eternal punishment, but Jesus took it for me as he hung on the cross. So Paul is saying, simply, in transaction terms, he's saying, I used to care about all these things. They seemed like positives. I put them on the positive side. I was adding them up, saying, look at all the stuff I'm doing. I'm gonna have a right relationship with God. Now I see them as negatives in comparison to this thing called Christianity. And we must ask the question, what changed? It's a big deal to go from I'm going to persecute Christians to I'm going to be one and I'm going to consider everything I've done to this point in my life a loss compared to it. And he hints at it in, in the next two verses. Here's what he says. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul encounters the resurrection. We read about this. Paul is actually on his way to arrest more Christians in a different city. He's trying to end this thing called Christianity in its very early days, and here's what we read in Acts 9, 1 through 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, another term for Christianity, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Paul encounters Jesus resurrected from the dead. And Jesus ends by saying something that nobody likes. It feels like a bad transaction, especially in our society today. Jesus says you will go to the city and you will be told what to do. And Paul had a decision to make in that moment. I can ignore this. I can say it's a dream. I could choose not to give up my life. I could, I could continue on my same way and not listen to this guy who's now trying to control me. But Paul encounters this resurrection. And everything that we read after that says that there was no real decision to be made. As soon as Paul saw the resurrected Jesus, he was like, you can have my entire life. I'll do exactly what you say. I'll follow you wherever you lead me. If you follow the story of Paul, he's beaten, he's flogged, he's stoned, he's shipwrecked, he's arrested, and he probably dies in a pretty brutal way at the hands of an emperor named Nero, who was one of the worst people ever to live, ever. And Paul, in one moment, I mean a single moment, he encounters the resurrection. He's like, wow, Jesus died, I saw it happen, 
and now he's alive. So you can have all of me. If you got out of the grave, you can absolutely have all of me. And it's so fascinating to me because Paul would have been around when Jesus was walking the earth. Maybe we don't think about that sometimes because Paul doesn't show up in the first four books of the New Testament called the Gospels where we read about the life of Jesus while he lived on earth before he died and rose again. Paul would have seen him. He would have listened to him. And it's so fascinating to me because hearing the teaching of Jesus did not persuade Paul to follow him. Didn't happen. Paul would have heard Jesus teach for sure and it did not, it did not in any way persuade Paul to follow Jesus. Paul might have seen the miracles that Jesus did and not a single one of them persuaded him to follow Jesus. Paul may have watched Jesus die on a cross and it didn't persuade him to follow Jesus. But when Paul saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, he said, you can have my life forever. I will do whatever you want me to do. And he became a Christian in an instant. He explains this later in a book called 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12, and 13, this is what he says. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And then he says this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, 53 through 57. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The thing of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was no idiot. He's like, this guy has the power to keep me from eternal death. This guy has the power to come out of the grave and he has the power so that I can come out of the grave. He's like, your teaching didn't do it for me. Your miracles didn't do it for me. Your death didn't do it for me. But guess what? Seeing you alive changes everything. For Paul, it's like, well, this transaction is easy. I can trade my my short-term life on this earth for an eternal life in heaven. He continues in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. One final parting shot. Paul wants us to know that the transaction cannot be real if the transaction makes the goal something that happens on earth. If it's simply, if you see Christianity, and I know we all probably see it a little bit differently, but if you see Christianity as adding up to something that you can experience now while you're alive sitting on this earth, then then you have a false view of what Christianity is. If you're like, if I'm a Christian, I'll make people happy. If I'm a Christian, then I'll feel better. If I'm a Christian, I'll have more money. If I'm a Christian, then then you're wrong. That's not what Christianity is. Paul makes it very simple. Christianity is our life plus faith in Jesus' death and resurrection for eternal life in heaven. Now, here's the thing. Paul was unique in his encounter with Jesus. I mean, we can stop and we can be like, well, if I saw Jesus like that, then I would be willing to make the trade, my life for the life of Jesus. Jesus. 
But here's the thing. You may not see a glowing light, but Jesus is reaching out to you. Jesus might just be reaching out to you through the Bible. I mean, he left his word here. There's a reason the Bible exists. It's not just so that pastors can tell you to read it more. It exists so that we can understand the story of God and so that God can call us heavenward. And so the Bible just in itself is Jesus saying, hey, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. I want you to give me your life. You can go to our website if you uh, don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead and we have wonderful proof on there for the resurrection of Jesus. You can go to creeksidebiblechurch.org backslash the doctrine of resurrection and, and you can go there and you can see why we think it really happened and why we think the Bible to be true. But here's another way. I think you're sitting here this morning Something brought you into this place and something brought you here, I believe, so that Jesus can say, hey, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. Give me your life. And then, and I know this happens, I know that some of you deep in your soul, you know that you should make the trade. And when you are away from people and, and you're, you're alone and it's quiet, the music and the TV is shut off and you're sitting there, you, you understand that something is missing and you worry about what will take place after this life. And if you've been around Christian circles, then, then, then you have this feeling, I, I, should, I should give my life to Jesus. And if you haven't, then maybe this is the first time that you're hearing you should give your life to Jesus, but you just know somewhere deep in you when nobody's looking and you're not talking and everything's shut off somewhere deep in you, you know that this is not that good and you feel like if you could just trade it, if you could just trade your life for something better, then you could have satisfaction and you could look forward to eternity. I believe in one way or another, one way or another, everybody that sits in front of me today is being called to give their life to Jesus so that they can experience the power of resurrection a power that will keep us out of the grave, a power that allows us to be free from, from the shackles of sin and, and death, a power that allows us to have joy even in the midst of the worst circumstances, a power that lets us know that God loves us and will love us for eternity. I believe that each of you, somewhere inside of you is being called to say my life for that power for resurrection. But the truth is, there's people here who won't do it. There's people all over our country and all over our world who won't make the trade, who won't simply say, sure, I will give you my life, Jesus, for the power of resurrection. I think I found the reason why, and it happened just at the dentist the other day. I'm getting my teeth cleaned. You don't talk too much. I have a great dentist. He lives right down the road in Wilsonville, actually. Uh, and so we get to talking, and he starts talking about this book. I don't remember what the context was, and it's called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. It was named one of the best books of 2011 by the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and Wall Street Journal. Uh, it is a book in, in which the author discusses why people make decisions, which is also known as an economics book, but it's written so that normal people like me will want to read it. That's how it ended up on the bestseller list. And in the book, he talks about a couple things that I think uh, are really, really important. And uh, the first one is that people are loss averse. Loss aversion is this. People are more likely to act to avert loss 
than to achieve a gain. And when you look at the transaction, maybe not you, but when people look at the transaction that is Christianity, they're like, well, I don't want to view my nice house as a negative. I don't want that to go away. I don't want to look at these things and think they're poop. I don't want to lose anything. And while this loss aversion theory says that people uh, will, can, will not look at what might, they might gain and they won't factor in the odds of succeeding, they'll just simply say, I don't want to give anything up. We're really likely to hold on to what we have even when we think that something might be better. And I know that there's people here, right here in front of me, who are like, yeah, that resurrection thing seems amazing. I mean, I get to have life forever in perfection of heaven, but I really want to enjoy myself for this 70 years that I live on this earth. I don't want to give this up. I don't want to have to follow Jesus. I don't want to have to whatever. Be smart enough to see past the natural tendency towards loss aversion. I mean, be smart enough to see a good deal. Your 70-year life that it mounts to a pile of poop, according to Paul, once he saw the resurrection, for an eternity in heaven with a God who loves you, where there's no more sorrow and no more tears and no more pain and the greatest food that you could ever eat and the most fun that you can possibly imagine and the most beautiful colors that you can ever see. I mean, be smart enough. I just... Just be smart enough to not let loss aversion, this, this sociological theory, allow you, keep you from accepting Jesus as your savior. There's another rule that the book costs, or, or talks about. It's called sunk costs, and this is what, it's, what it is. Rather than consider the odds that an incremental investment would produce a positive return, people tend to throw good money after bad and continue investing in projects with poor prospects that have already consumed significant resources. In other words, your life. I mean, you can look, if you haven't given yourself to Jesus, and you can say, wow, I've tried everything to make me feel joy, to, to live longer, and none of it's gonna work. I'm ultimately, I don't feel that good. I'm ultimately going to die no matter how hard I work out. And, and you can look at your life and you, and you can say, I, I keep throwing, I keep throwing my resources, my time, my energy, I keep trying because I just wanna get it right on my own. And I know that there's people, I know it, who are like, well, well, that sounds great. I could get over that Christian thing. I could come into the power of resurrection, but I've already tried so many things. I'm just gonna keep trying to fix myself and make myself feel better and stay alive as long as possible. It happens a lot because people want to avoid feelings of regret. I think about that. That's a lot of people. Like, if I say, if I say, that I want the resurrection. I must give myself to Jesus to obtain it. If I do that, then I have to admit that everything I have worked so hard for, that I, have, that I have striven for for so many years, that I have placed my hope and my confidence in for so long, I have to look at it and say, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. Now again, I just, I just, <laughs> I just want to encourage you to be smart enough to rise above this. I mean, you already know. You already know it's not working. It's somewhere inside of you. You're like, I've tried everything and it just doesn't, it doesn't work. I'm not gonna live forever. I can't do that on my own. Nobody can do that on their own. 
and I'm not gonna have the joy that I really want. And again, in those moments when you're alone in your room, you're like, I just, I just wish I had something. And then you wake up the next day and you're like, if I work a little harder, if I try this new drug, if I have this new relationship, if I get better at this one talent, then maybe, maybe I'll feel good. And all it is is worrying that you have to give up on you. But Paul's saying, once you say yes, Jesus, once you encounter that, then all of that won't matter. It won't matter at all. Let me put up the real transaction of Christianity. Our life, plus faith in the fact that Jesus died for our sins and then rose from the grave to conquer death, equals us being resurrected. Resurrection. We can have it for eternity. So today, I just want you, as, as this is up here, I want you, if you are a Christian, if you're already a Christian, you're like, I've made that trade, I've made that trade, then I just want this simple question this Easter. It's a great Easter present for Jesus. Ask yourself, what part of my life am I unwilling to give up? I mean, what am I holding back and saying, well, I know you were resurrected, that's great, and I have faith, but this part of my life, I mean, where's the negative symbol in this? Where's the minus? I mean, life minus this plus faith, I'll give you that Jesus. What is it? And today, I'm just, I just ask that you would make a decision. And I'll ask you to make this decision by raising your hand when I pray in a few moments. I'm just gonna ask you to say, you know, just Jesus, you don't have to tell me what it is, but you just raise your hand and say, Jesus, yeah, there's parts. You know what those parts are uh, that I'm not giving you and I'm holding back. But you never said the transaction was some little prayer. You never said it was just showing up to church. You said, it's my life and faith in Jesus. That's the trade for the resurrection. There's others of you who sit before me. and You've never made this transaction. And right now all you have is, all you have is poop. And you don't like me saying that. You're like, oh, what a jerk. Or I don't care. I just need you to know. I'm sorry if you think that's bad. But you already know it deep in your soul. I know you know it. We all do. I've never talked to any, any person who has become a Christian later in life. I I'm, I'm became a Christian too young to remember what it felt like to, to not have Jesus. But I've never talked to a person who becomes a Christian that says, oh yeah, I can't believe I made that trade. I mean, all of that stuff before was just so awesome. Everybody goes, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's garbage. Compared to this, compared to everything that comes along with giving my life to Jesus and having faith in him as a dead and risen savior and, and everything that comes along with the power of Jesus getting out of the grave and sitting in heaven and interacting with us on a daily basis and making it possible for us to go to heaven someday. And so I'll ask you in just a few moments, if you fall into that category, I'm just gonna ask as we pray and people will have their eyes shut, I can't promise that because uh, you know part of your life might be raising your hand and saying, yeah, Jesus, you can have it. Uh, but I'm going to ask you to just to, in your heart to make that commitment to say, you know what? You know what, Jesus? Right now, I don't have anything. I don't have anything worth anything. But I'm going to put aside the loss aversion and the sunk cost, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you myself. Will you pray with me as I ask you those questions? Everybody bow your heads, please. And I ask right now, if you're a person... 
that has never chosen to give yourself to Jesus by, and to have faith in, in him as your savior and you've put all the, all the pressure on yourself and you've tried a million different things or a hundred different things even, I, I just would ask that you'd put your hand in the air right now and let me know uh, that you today are making a decision to give yourself to Jesus. Thank you. And, and if you're a Christian, you're in this room right now, and you're like, yeah, you know, right now the transaction for me is my life minus something plus faith. And, and, and as you sit here and you already know the Easter story and you know, uh, you know the power of the resurrection because you have experienced it, but you're holding something back and, and you just want me to pray for that this morning, then, then, then I, I would just ask that, that you would raise your hand right now and let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for those hands that went up. It's one of the things that makes Easter so great is because even in, in our experience of the resurrection, just as a church family, people are drawn to make decisions for you. And I'm so thankful for that, Lord. I'm so thankful for that. And God, I want to pray for those first people who put their hands up. Lord, I just want to just pray right now as they are making a decision. They've just, they've just made a decision to enter into your kingdom, to, to enter into the power of resurrection, to give themselves to you so that they can experience eternity and so that they can have true joy and they can leave behind these things that don't really matter. I just pray that, that in them, Lord, you would, in, in a new way, like you did with Paul, in a powerful way, you would help them to experience all of the, the love and the forgiveness and the peace and the joy that comes along with the relationship that they just chose to enter into. And God, I pray. I pray, Lord, that as they move forward from here, they would, they would tell others that they would be open to share that they've made this decision to make this transaction I pray, God, that they would, they would not be torn down by all these other things that try to work their way in, all these things that try to take away from us giving ourselves fully to you. And God, for the Christians in this room who just raised their hands, who put their hands up and said, you know, I'm holding part back. I pray, God, that as we, as we continue on our celebration today, that, that they would remember that nothing compares, nothing compares, Lord, to knowing you. And I would ask, God, that whatever it is, whatever, whatever sin is in their life, or whatever thing that they refuse to do for you, that this morning the decision would be made to give it up or to do it for you, God. And when they walk out of this place, there will be no turning back as we sometimes sing in the old hymn. There would be no turning back. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for dying for us. I mean, just that you came to earth is, I don't know, it's like stupidly incredible, God. If I can put adjectives together, it's, it's like mind-blowing to me, Lord. And then to just suffer and die such a horrible death is, for me, 
for us is beyond comprehension. But Lord, you told us about it, so we believe it. And then you got out of that grave, and it's... I just love knowing that. I love knowing because you got out of that grave, Lord, I can look forward to an eternity with you. It's so awesome. You know, as I was singing this morning, God, I was thinking about my great-grandma in heaven and how, God, we are celebrating very similarly today. And that's only because you got out of the grave. I pray these things in your name. Amen.